Today is Monday, January 17th, 2022, and this is episode 260 of the Defensive Security Podcast. Yes, my friends, you heard that right. It has been less than six months since the last episode. High fives. Wow. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. How are you, sir? I'm uh, pretty good. How are you? I'm good. No, nobody can see us, but you got this fancy new setup going on. Like you got like a boom mic. You got a new camera. I do I do? I am getting getting all fancy. Have you been moonlighting on other podcasts without me? Is that what's no, going on? No, I I actually have been thinking about doing um, more podcasting um, on other topics like uh, behavioral economics. This is why you're fun at parties. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> All right. Um, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of those of our employer. Although, as Andy is uh, want to say, they could be yours if the price is right. It's true. We are very, very viable. <laughs> All right. So, um, getting into some stories for today. The first first one comes from CSO Online, and the title is. Thousands of enterprise servers are running vulnerable BMCs. Researchers, researchers find. So, so if you if you set aside for a second the fact that this story comes from a company whose focus is on uh, firmware security, it's actually a pretty interesting uh, aspect that I think a lot of companies don't really pay enough attention to. And the the story here is talking about a um, attack slash piece of malware called ILO Bleed. ILO, for those of you who are, um, I, I assume most people know, is the integrated lights out function in HP servers. Uh, but most servers, most all servers actually have uh, some, some kind of baseboard management capability. And um, typically their security is absolutely awful. I don't know. A lot of kids today are cloud only. They probably never heard of this craziness. Well, you know, the cloud, uh, the, the cloud at the end of the day runs on servers that have BMCs, so that's true. But yeah, it's uh, it, it is a been kind of a, a laughable disaster. I know we've talked about some of these in the past, uh, but in this particular case, uh, this is talking about an attack by a presumed APT actor uh, who has found a way to load some malware into uh, at least some versions of ILO to wipe disks. So kind of a new 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 uh, take on. Um, you know, the, the disk wiping destruction malware that we've seen in the past. Yeah, it's especially nasty because this is a firmware device that's meant to sit outside of the operating system and give you a secondary functionality to control the box, right? It's it's a remote admin tool, basically. Uh, that's on its own NIC. It's on its own network interface. It's often has its own power. So it can be operational when the actual main machine is offline and powered down, which is great for all sorts of hands-off, you know, remote administration. 
not so great when the bad guys find it and start abusing it. Exactly. And uh, so, so this company, Eclipsium, says that they've identified about 7,800 of these ILO ports accessible from the internet, which is super convenient. It makes me a little mad because, uh, you know, there's a really stark shortage of IP addresses and, and here we are. Right. Uh, and this is a separate physical network interface card. Yeah, they had to try. I mean, like, like they, this wasn't an accident. They had to try. How does that end up internet facing? I don't, like, I should answer my own question with realizing that lots of craziness happens, but yeah. wow. Yeah. Well, you know, firewalls are risky and all that stuff. So over the years, there has been just an absolute dearth of, um, of BMC vulnerabilities. You know, IPMI itself, the, the IPMI protocol itself had a pretty serious vulnerability a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, we, it, it's really not gotten better from there. And in general, uh, you're really beholden to the server providers fixing vulnerabilities. And, you know, it's and especially as, as hardware starts to age out, the, uh, the likelihood of a, of a hardware manufacturer continuing to provide updates you know, starts to decline over time. So, yeah, because everybody updates their ILO firmware. Come on now. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that, that's the I guess that's the point of the article is right <laughs> that uh, you you really do need to be aware that this thing exists and it presents a threat to your uh, to, to your environment. And, and they point out that by the way, the, the only way uh, to exploit this isn't necessarily just through the, the that separate port. If for instance, you have administrative credentials on the, the host operating system. Typically, there's some capability to you know, to manage the firmware in this um, this uh, BMC cap- uh, BMC computer, which again, you know, would potentially allow a, a downgrade attack or you know j- just to load malware that's not detectable from within the operating system. So you know, there's no CrowdStrike agent that runs in your ILO or or other server server manufacturers equivalents. Yeah, it, it's also interesting, like these ILO ports typically are on their own discrete network, should be at least, for use by the server team. But they're rarely scanned by vulnerability management in most enterprises I've seen. They're rarely in asset management. They're, so they're kind of like out of sight, out of mind, and probably not being included on a lot of you know, patch and firmware update cycles because they're probably not getting picked up by typical vulnerability management tools. Yeah. So I was talking with Bob about how he he manages uh, the the risk of this because you know, realistically, if you have, if you have any number of any meaningful number of of actual server physical servers, you know, there there's a new vulnerability almost as soon as you put the turn the power on, right? So. And again, not all these things are are capable of being fixed, or or again, there are protocol vulnerabilities that just uh, that can't be fixed. Uh, so one of the things that Bob does is actually turn off the network port at the switch until the time that someone needs to actually interface with that with that port. So they oh, that's smart if you remember to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's all automatable, yeah. right? It's what it's what he said at least. Well, yeah, until it's two in the morning and you get a pager call out and you're like, why can't I get to the ILO port? <laughs> you forget to turn the switch port on. 
No, that's pretty clever, though. Like, it keeps them offline until you need them. Fair enough. Yep, absolutely. Though, if you are doing vulnerability management scanning on those boards and they're down, you're not getting a, a read on their versioning. But Well, that's the downside. Um, but yeah. a lot, but it, it's in, a clever idea. I like in it. Some, in some instances, you can actually see the, um, yeah, again, not, not all types of servers, this is a capability, but you'll be able to see the firmware version of the of the BMC from the server, right? So like you'll right. have the ability to apply firmware updates through, let's say, Windows or, or Linux. This, as a quick aside, though, this has always made me curious. Like the OS front end NIC is usually well thought about and well architected, architected as to what network segment it goes in and the firewall rules that are let through to it and all that sort of jazz for things like backup networks and ILO networks and this sort of stuff. Typically that's not thought out. They're just thrown in one big ass broadcast domain and away they go. And I wonder how much that could be abused by an attacker. If they could ever get access to that management segment and just go to town. Uh, I, it would in many organizations, I think it would be pretty disastrous. Because they're not, you know, you think your servers are segmented, but you're not thinking about, oh, that backup port to the backup machine isn't segmented. Right. You know, it's all in one big slash 22. Yeah. And, you know, everybody thinks about, uh, well, you know, that, that that network has all sorts of precautions on it. So, of course, we're, we're okay with accepting the risk of, let's say, some vulnerability. But heaven forbid somebody finds a way in there, it's, you know, it can walk all over the place potentially yeah it's just one of those architecture things that i you know one more thing for security folks to not forget about when they're thinking about how all these networks function and different ways a a attack could could function through or move through your laterally through your environment absolutely all right, our next story comes from cso online as well and the title here is cybercrime group elephant beetle wow sounds Sounds impressive. Lurks inside networks for months. I think that needs to be the name of a cover band. The Elephant Beatles. I gotta work on that. Fancy. So this story here uh, is is really focusing on the P in APT. Uh, they're they're describing this elephant beetle uh, threat actor who finds a way into organizations that were typically financial. Uh, services companies or uh, apparently online retailers they're they're leveraging uh, typically java related vulnerabilities on web servers like um, like prime faces websphere and sap netweaver and uh, what what's you know i guess a little bit unique about them is uh, they after they use this um, you know, the, the the java vulnerabilities they're uploading web shells uh, relatively um, innocuous looking in uh, in the same directories as other parts of code typically named in such a way to to be a, uh, unnoticeable right so that they, it, it's custom tailored to the environment so that you know it looks like it belongs um, then once once they're in they spend some uh, some amount of time potentially months uh, at first, establishing lateral movement capabilities using a variety of different open source and uh, and uh, custom tools. It said about 80 different tools. 
and uh, then they spend after they've they've moved laterally and uh, and have a, a decent foothold in the in place. They actually monitor the flow of money. They they monitor how transactions happen. So it's this is not this is kind of a my view a blended attack right there. They're attacking IT vulnerabilities, but then they're watching how the business processes work, and then they start uh, injecting uh, fraudulent transactions small amounts at a time. And that's as compared to other threat actors in the past who do something similar, but then like you know they'll shoot their shot all in one go, trying to steal you know hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars at the same time. Where this threat actor is trying to stay kind of below the radar and over the course of months or, or longer steal effectively the same amount of money. Yeah. I think, uh, didn't we cover this in like Superman two, like yeah, portions of pennies. Something like that. Off, I think office, office space, space also covered yeah. this as well. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because they, they get in there and then they look around and get to know the environment and then very slowly get themselves in a place to execute a very low and slow attack. So they, they talk a, a bit about some of the, the lateral movement capabilities they use. They, they apparently rely a lot on hard-coded credentials that exist in source code. So for instance, you know they, they, they talk about uh, collecting database passwords from, uh, from web server code that lets them access Microsoft SQL servers. And if those servers are not configured you know, well uh, to try to laterally move into the database servers and other systems uh, in particular, they, they point out that Microsoft SQL is a target of opportunity using credentials that they've captured to try to create additional user IDs, typically in an active directory domain, which, you know, then at that point it's kind of game on. It, it seems there's lots of opportunity for detection here, though, if you've got really good awareness of your environment and have a lot of time to like note things in the logs, which not a lot of people have, but it's somewhat somewhat noisy as they move around. Yeah, there's you know so they they actually give a a list of items to detect, and they're not all detections, but um, you know, a list of, of things you can do to to help protect against this. And but by the way, you know, I, I suspect this is um, not the most prolific threat actor out there. Uh, apparently, it's somewhat focused on uh, on Latin American organizations. But you know, the thing that concerns me is like everybody and their dog is reading all these these uh, tactics, and so it's quite likely we'll see other uh, you know, other threat actors who may have different motives also adopting some of these techniques. But anyway, the, the things they uh, they said to look for are uh, making sure you keep your applications and operating systems up to date, pretty obvious. Avoid using clear text credentials and scripts. Just talked about that. Avoid using the same password for different administrative interfaces on different servers. That, by the way, is, I, f- I found, remarkably common problem in a lot of organizations you know, a lot of a lot of companies have you know, certainly password complexity requirements, but not a lot of organizations have a requirement that says you know you have to have a different ID on uh, or a different password on each system. It's a little less little less common. Obviously, when you use when you get into something like Active Directory, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But um, but there you have it. 
Avoid using XP command shell procedure and disable it on Microsoft SQL servers. Monitor for configuration changes and usage of XP command shell. Monitor on war deployments and validate that the package's deployment functionality is included in the logging policy. Hunt and monitor for presence and creation of suspicious.class files. Hunt and monitor for presence of creation of the web pages and static resource folders. You know, th- that's one thing, by the way, that always struck me as an opportunity is using something like file integrity monitoring to look for uh, changes to your, your web application directory trees. Somehow, obviously, you'd have to com- you'd have to smash that up against um, you know, when you push code when you push website changes. But um, you know, this is a it doesn't seem like rocket science, I guess. No, but it, it takes a good correlation of what is normal behavior from your web devs and your monitoring team. So you're not just getting alert fatigue from, well, we got an alert, but I don't know if it's real or not because I don't know what they're doing and it takes too much effort to go talk to them. And yeah, you, you need to have a close association with those teams to be able to figure out what's normal and what isn't uh, as they do their thing. Now, there's ways to do that just from monitoring and you know getting to know those environments, but that takes a lot of analyst time and energy that often they're chasing other things. But I, I agree, it's a, it's a good thing to do. It just takes cycles. Yep. Say so, uh, monitor for processes that were executed by either the web server parent server processes or database related processes. So you know, looking for things like your your web server launching cmd.exe as as an example, and then finally uh, making sure that you're properly segmented between your server networks and your internal networks. Really, yeah. Uh, Really standard fare there. Yeah, unless they just you know move on to the ILO network and just go lateral that way. That's what I would do. <laughs> All right, next uh, story comes from ZDNet. Title is "When Open Source Developers Go Bad." Next on Fox. Oh boy, this was a big Twitter kerfuffle too. Yeah, that's the reason I don't hang out much on Twitter anymore. Can't handle kerfuffles like I used to be able to. So the story here is that a person named Marac Squires was the maintainer for two particular JavaScript applications or code libraries, whatever you want to think about them, colors.js and faker.js. Pretty easy to guess what each of them does. The faker.js, for those of you who can't figure it out, creates fake data for your application to use. but these are pretty popular. Um, uh, let's see, Faker.js was uh, included in 2,500 uh, NPM programs and had 2.4 million downloads per week. Colors.js was in 19,000 other uh, NPM packages and downloaded 23 million times per week. That's um, kind of big. And uh, so the... the the, the author here apparently uh, decided he was done uh, with his with his contributions to society being used by companies making money and so he uh, he, he altered them to create an infinite loop so any application that that included these and updated to include the latest uh, version um, effectively stopped functioning so um, 
was it was pretty uh, I think pretty eye opening for a lot of people that you know, this was not the same situation we've seen in the past where uh, you know either the the maintainer sold the 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 repository to some malicious person or a repository was compromised by a, a malicious hacker the, uh, the the actual author legitimate author apparently uh, took act took this action so really um highlights the the supply chain issues that we have going on but adds another complexity that like even legitimate players can uh, can be the threat actor yeah and there was a whole bunch of debate of what to do about this uh that i saw and whether or not like this this guy's account was suspended and then it was unsuspended and these were deleted and reverted and did he have the right to do this and what are the expectations for those who are using the tools to to not be you know subverted like this and what are the what are the licenses around free open source and if this guy had the right to do this and just a whole bunch of philosophical debate around the open source movement but at the end of the day we've got a whole bunch of commercial organizations using these tools and it it you know screwed up a whole bunch of stuff and i don't know is this going to be an edge case is this going to happen more often certainly you can do some things to run once this was known it was easy to detect and stop but it's an interesting problem uh because there's a whole bunch of infrastructure and application development built on this sort of thing that I don't think a lot of people realize. Yeah. I mean, both, both um, open other open source and close, closed source as well. Almost certainly I, I hadn't heard any clo- of any impact on closed source software, but I'm sure that there's something somewhere out there. Uh, but you know, th- this again is, is, a big, you know, a, a symptom of a much larger problem we have with, um, with source code supply chain, right? We, um, we have a very, very complicated problem. We have uh, implicit trust all over the place, and you know that I, I don't know most most people, I, I assume likely know, but like with um, with npm and, and JavaScript, like there are. The average uh, application can have like tens of thousands of dependencies. There's a lot of opportunity for uh, sh- for shenanigans and, and for problems to arise. And you know the the alternative is is um, is not very appealing. I mean, you, on the one hand, you either have to continue trusting implicitly, or you have to either stop you know using it, or you have to have something in in place that that assesses the quality of, of all the code. And I, you know, I don't think most organizations have the wherewithal to, to handle the latter. It is just too much code out there. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's tools out there that will do some fairly basic checking of is a package is vulnerable or malicious and that sort of thing. And, and alert you before it's, you know, if it's used in your environment, but Again, this was the maintainer themselves subverting the code in such a way that caused basically a denial of service. Once that is known and you have a tool that is updated and you could be alerted to that, okay, that's fine. But you're basically back to the old days of AV 
programs where you're waiting for somebody else to get hit by it. Hopefully you get your dat file updated before you see the malicious code. Uh, it's a it's a tough problem because there's so much, like you said, implicit trust built on this sort of open source package availability. And I don't, you know, we certainly cannot go back to hand coding everything independently. No. That's that's just not viable. No, it's not, and it, you know it does point does point to the importance of uh, of testing, right? And uh, in this particular case, obviously, if you had tested, you, you would have uh, you would have detected that your code went into an infinite loop, and that would have. Yeah, in this case, in this but there's case. so many times it's such a subtle problem, right? I mean, what's your test? This is an obvious thing to test and detect, but somebody bakes in a very quiet back door. How are you going to pick that up in testing? No, that's a good point. That's a good point. There's uh, there's certainly going to be cases that, that you really can't. Um, and it does it it does again highlight the point of of the importance of of um, you know, some of the emerging tools around code quality. Uh, but but again, even even that is, I'm sure, is pretty pretty dramatic blind spots. So, um, yeah, it's, watch, a, it's a tough problem. I don't have a lot of good solutions in this one. Watch this space. Yeah, I think I, I honestly think this this area is going to be one of the you know one one of the most uh, one of the areas that has the most significant development in terms of um, you know new organizations, new companies, new products, and whatnot uh, in in the coming couple years be my guess. Fair enough. All right. So uh, moving on to the last story here from bleeping computer, Microsoft resumes rollout of January windows server updates. So this was um, for those of you who are a uh, window shop, uh, quite annoying. Last, last Tuesday was uh, patch Tuesday. One of the uh, vulnerabilities in particular was, was critical and um, it was declared potentially warmable by Microsoft themselves was a, a, a protocol flaw with their HTTP uh, protocol driver and um, it w- allowed potential remote code execution. And again, un, you know, un, uh, unauthenticated and potentially a, a, a warmable kind of vulnerability and was patched before any kind of worm was, was released which was good. Uh, unfortunately, the patch caused uh, quite a lot of chaos in in some versions of Windows Server 2019, 2022, and, and a couple of other versions, particularly in domain controllers, it would cause a boot loop. Just, Look, if the box is booting, it can't be warmed. It, well, it's true. It's true. If it's not running, it cannot be compromised. And I, I can only assume that was the the thought here. Mm. Uh, there there were a few other um, few other vulnerabilities fixed and a few other problems. Like uh, apparently it caused um, was it ReFS the resilient file system to be corrupted. Uh, so you might call it slightly less resilient. Sli- slightly less resilient. Yeah. <laughs> it. Um, it also caused problems on Windows uh, 10 and Windows 11. Uh, apparently broke um, uh, some L2TP VPN capabilities. 
Uh, so I, I know that in the aftermath of the deployment, there's a lot of consternation. Like, what do you do? Like you have this super uh, apparently seeming uh, critical vulnerability uh, with a patch that's known to hose your environment. What do you do? <laughs> and, uh, you know, f- f- for, I think for most of us, the the answer was test. And if it caused a problem, you had to find a way to mitigate the issue. Yeah, it sucks because we need good quality patches. And we know that patch velocity matters. We know that the bad guys start reverse engineering these patches very quickly. And so when this happens, it really undermines trust in Windows patching. And it's very unfortunate because it's, you know, I, I've always kind of been on the record of patch really patch often. And this undermines that. And it Absolutely. breaks more than it fixes. Absolutely. So that that sucks. I, I mean, it, I think you're going to damned if you do, damned if you don't. But I would be very curious statistically how often... Like we have a lot of anecdotal cases and we remember them. But what's the percentage over time of how many of these Windows updates break stuff to the point where you've got this kind of thing? And is it high enough that we're going to slow down patching to do extensive testing or let other people do extensive testing and make sure they're not broken? Or do we just keep trusting them blindly? I don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's greater than zero. But on the other hand, it's something that we still talk about and therefore it's not happening every month, right? Versus if you don't patch and you get hit by an exploit, yeah. Which is the higher risk. Yeah. Now we think about things from an exploit perspective, so we might be biased in one direction. So I'd be curious the statistics. Now, if you're a sysadmin and your job is more about keeping systems up and stable and you know functioning, you're going to be much more sensitive to that risk. And it's balancing those two that makes this job hard. Yep, that's absolutely right. All right. Well, that is uh, that is the show for today. Appreciate everyone's time. Look forward to talking again soon. Any, any parting thoughts? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Lurg, L-E-R-G. Jerry is occasionally on Twitter still at Malicious Link. And our show can be followed at Defensive Sec on Twitter. Yep. Uh, we, we do try to keep an eye on that. I, like Jerry, have kind of slowly drifted away from Twitter. It's just got a little too... Too hostile at times. Just a little, little too much tension out there. It's not good for my heart, heart blood pressure. That's right. But uh, I do love to hear from folks, and I'm happy to interact. I just, I shy away from all the politics these days. But uh, otherwise, really happy you guys are still with us. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, the shows are valuable to you, and uh, hopefully, we'll talk to you again very soon. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>